you're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, the Anthropocene Extinction. And it's our 150th show! And our ninth anniversary. Woo! So many things! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. It's our ninth anniversary episode. We picked a real bummer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We sure know how to celebrate. (laughs) There are cookies, though. There are, and and Ashlyn decorated them delightfully to celebrate the occasion. My name is Jim Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. So today we are talking about extinction. Not the extinction of this show. After nine years, it's... (laughs) (laughs) So today we'll be discussing extinction events in general and talking about some extinct species. And then we're going to talk a little bit about conservation and endangered species. And then uh, we'll end the show with our usual, what have you been enjoying lately, uh, to try to lighten things up after what's sure to be a dour episode, even by our standards. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) A mass extinction event is an event characterized by a massive contraction of global biodiversity. This is typically defined as the loss of three quarters of all species within a geologically short period of time. The scientific community is largely convinced that as a result of human activity, we are currently in the midst of the sixth such extinction, referred to as the Holocene or Anthropocene extinction. In November 2017, a statement was released titled, World Scientists Warning to Humanity, a Second Notice. According to this paper, which was signed by more than 15,000 scientists from 184 countries, quote, We have unleashed a mass extinction event, the sixth in roughly 540 million years, wherein many current life forms could be annihilated or at least committed to extinction by the end of this century. This extinction event is driven by human activity, including but not limited to pollution and ocean acidification, overfishing, agricultural activity driven by increased meat consumption, and activities related to extractive capitalism. This has led to widespread degradation of coral reefs, rainforests, and other highly biodiverse habitats. We are at the top of the food chain, and ecologists have classified human beings as a global super-predator. I refuse to put in the obvious Clinton drop here. The current extinction rate is estimated to be two to three orders of magnitude higher than the natural background rate of extinction. That is to say, species are going extinct at least 100 times more often than we would expect without human activity, with plants going extinct twice as quickly as animals. Estimates based on a pair of studies in 2015 indicate that human activity may have already caused the extinction of 7% of all species on Earth, and this species loss is accelerating. Not everyone agrees with the scientists, of course. We're going to talk about some extinct species in particular, and we'll start with the woolly mammoth. The mammoth, not to be confused with the mastodon, (laughs) coexisted with human beings until its extinction, roughly 4,000 years ago. 
around the time of the construction of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. I love that fact about the mammoths. It just blows my mind every time. The mammoth was hunted for food and for its ivory. We actually, Laura and I, saw uh, mammoth tusk uh, carvings when we were in Las Vegas. Ah, yes, the known home of the woman mammoth. <laughs> <laughs> the habitat of the mammoth uh, was not the Nevada desert, uh, but uh, was instead known as the Mammoth Steppe, which stretched across northern Eurasia, uh, across the Bering Land Bridge that once connected it to modern Alaska, and into the Great Plains and Great Lakes regions of North America. Whether the greatest decline in mammoth populations is attributable to hunting or climate change is not known, but we do know that large animals are generally more vulnerable to extinction than small ones. Mammoths were K-strategists, tending to have lower reproduction rates and population sizes than the typically smaller R-strategists. In adulthood, male mammoths grew to be 9 to 11 feet tall and could probably live to be about 60 years old. Though in adulthood they were roughly the size of an African elephant, the woolly mammoth is more closely related to the Asian elephant, and only distantly related, as I mentioned earlier, to the mastodon. Uh, if, you, if you ever confuse the two, you can look at a picture of them side by side, but the woolly mammoth uh, has sort He's of more a, woolly. You know, they're, they're both pretty woolly, <laughs> uh, but the, the mammoth uh, has sort of a, a lump on its head and at its shoulders, whereas a mastodon is much sort of smoother backed. Mastodon is uh, more distantly related to all living, um, what are those called? Pachyderms. Um, Loxodonta. Elephants. They're called elephants. <laughs> <laughs> like elephants, mammoths were herbivores and used their tusks for fighting, foraging, and moving objects around. Unlike elephants, mammoths were covered in fur, uh, with long guard hairs and a shorter undercoat to protect them against the, the elements. And as a defense against frostbite, their ears and tail were significantly smaller than those of an elephant. And, of course, Mr. Snuffleupagus is probably not a mammoth, as he lacks both tusks and visible ears. Oh, hello, bird. Hello, Snuffy. I never realized that. He doesn't have ears. He has tiny, tiny ear holes. It was mentioned in one episode. No, I'm. that makes sense to me, mm-hmm. but it never crossed my mind that he didn't have big elephant style ears his uh, his tail is also much larger than that of a mammoth he has more of a dinosaur tail yeah it's it's almost like rat like it's almost as though mr snuffleupagus was a cross between some sort of sauropod dinosaur and a woolly mammoth perhaps because he was a cartoon he wasn't a cartoon he wasn't a cartoon he was a puppet it's not quite a mop and it's not quite a puppet, but man. <laughs> oh, all right. But he I was don't know who this thing a is. figment You've of the imagination. Oh Street? my god, that's why you looked at me like that. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of a cartoon in that he's the figment of the imagination of another Muppet. Jesus. No, he's not. <laughs> yes, he is. No, okay, so that was the original interpretation. However, they discovered in, I believe, the 80s, hey, maybe it's not a good idea to teach children that adults will not believe them about the uh, existence of things or events that occur to them. Uh, uh, so they had this big episode where... Um, you hold Snuffy Snuffle and don't let go until all the grown-ups come and see him, okay? Don't worry, Big Bird. I'm on that go. Ashlyn is currently looking at a picture of Mr. Snuffleupagus and... You know, uh, horror. <laughs> no, like, I remember Big Bird and and Oscar the Grouch and stuff. I don't remember this creature. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was... Yeah. Uh, he still is. Uh, like, he, uh, relatively rare fixture on the show, but... 
Does anybody else remember his first name? Aloysius? Aloysius. Aloysius. Yeah. Aloysius Snuffleupagus. Yeah. Uh, I always called him a Snuffleupagus when I was a kid. Me too. I think a lot of kids did. Oh, he has feet like a bear. Oh, boy. That's that's not good. (laughs) He's cute. Come on. Look at those. Look at those eyes. He looks matted, though. Like all of his fur looks matted together and dirty. (laughs) Yeah, like a real mammoth. So anyway, they had this uh, this episode where where suddenly all of the adults who previously had not been able to see him and did not believe the children or the other Muppets who claimed that he existed uh, suddenly could see him, and it was uh, a grand old time. Ah, gotcha! Oh, go, go, big bird, go, big bird! Okay, now don't let him go. I'll go tell everybody. Anyway, we're getting off track, so um, <laughs> let's get further off track and talk about American presidents, one president in particular. In the late 18th century, Thomas Jefferson wrote, "Such is the economy of nature." that no instance can be produced of her having permitted any one race of her animals to become extinct, of her having formed any link in her great work so weak as to be broken. Jefferson is alluding here to the great chain of being. Anyone familiar with this idea? Nope. So the great chain of being is the idea that nature is structured in a perfect hierarchy laid out by the creator. Every plant, animal, and mineral in its place. Is this the thing where it's like God... The husband, the wife, the children. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Everything else. All of the animals, yeah. <laughs> every, every being, and, and mineral, uh, playing a, uh, a perfect and eternal role in its environment as ordained by God. This idea grew to prominence in medieval Christianity, but had antecedents in antiquity. Thomas Jefferson is, sadly, often imagined as a champion of Enlightenment values, but his belief in the great chain of being was unshakable. And here, as in so many other things, he was perfectly, terribly wrong. One of the many flaws of the Great Chain as a system of classification is that it is by necessity hierarchical in a way that our modern understanding of evolution is not. God sits at the top, then his angels, then man, ranked often enough into racial categories, then the animals, plants, and minerals. Have you ever heard anyone make reference to a missing link in the context of evolution? Well, that link is a link in the Great Chain. Mm, Makes sense. I'm not going to discuss the Great Chain in detail, but I think it's a good entry point into the topic of extinction, because it goes some way to explain, at least metaphorically, why so many people for so long took for granted the idea that no species could ever go extinct. The chain was ordained by God, each link in its place serving its role, supporting and supported by the others. Remove a single link from a chain, and the chain ceases to function. Today, all but the most diehard of cranks now recognize that species do in fact go extinct, though some zealots now argue that this extinction itself is ordained by God. We'll uh, come back to that later. In addition to being unjustified, this idea is incredibly harmful, because it absolves us of any responsibility to prevent a catastrophe that is so often our doing. And yet, the argument persists, with politicians arguing that human activity could not possibly disrupt the climate. Hmm. So it goes. The Great Chain of Being also explains why Thomas Jefferson was so convinced that the woolly mammoth was not extinct. For nearly a century, explorers had been discovering mammoth fossils in Kentucky and upstate New York. Despite having never seen one alive, nor having ever met anyone who had seen one alive, Jefferson included the American mammoth in a list of contemporary American animals in his book, Notes on the State of Virginia. I'll quote here from John Mulham's excellent book, Wild Ones. 
Confronted with mammoth fossils, Jefferson, like others, saw no reason to believe that herds of these giant animals weren't still grazing across the unexplored and undisturbed interior of the continent. Our entire ignorance of the immense country to the west and northwest, and of its contents, does not authorize us to say what it does not contain, he argued. Years later, he would advise Lewis and Clark to keep their eyes peeled for these monsters. Americans began calling the mammoth the American Incognitum, Latin for unknown. The mammoth was essentially a cryptid, but Jefferson saw it as vital to convince as many people as he could that it was real. A living mammoth would allow him to defend America's honor against Georges-Louis Leclerc Buffon, a French count who had written extensively of his theory of American degeneracy. <laughs> Here's where I avoid inserting any number of Trump drops, I guess. Buffon argued that the animals of the New World were less impressive than those of Europe, being generally small and sickly. Essentially, American animals were simply degenerate versions of those found in the Old World. This argument was, predictably, extended to the people of the Americas, first to the Aboriginal peoples and then to the colonists. This was politically expedient for those in power in Europe, who were keen to dismiss the American political experiment as a bad deal, and Buffon's ar arguments read were readily accepted in Europe. Proponents argued that Europeans who emigrated would see not only their livestock, but their bloodlines themselves degenerate. Jefferson was obsessed with the mammoth, seeing the American incognitum as a patriotic symbol of the wild, untamed American spirit, and he believed that a single living mammoth would disprove the theory of American degeneracy. Unfortunately, no one could find one. I'll quote Mullum again. Scientific evidence that the incognitum was extinct mounted. And in the end, there was no getting around the logical assumption that, if these fossilized animals did still roam the Earth, humankind would have stumbled into them by now. It was through the example of the mammoth that the concept of extinction gained credibility, undoing people's belief in the great chain of being. Americans, though, were slow to accept that fact, until it, too, was given a more palatable spin. Writers framed the disappearance of the mammoth as a divine blessing on America, Clearly, Americans couldn't claim dominion over the continent if it were teeming with angry mammoths, and so God had wiped out this terrible disturber. The idea of extinction had undermined religious belief in the great chain of being, but now it was reinterpreted to confirm the central myth of a new religion, Americanism. God had purged the mammoth so that the young nation could spread out and absorb the empty continent ahead of it. Ending that quote uh, with the hopeful understanding that uh, Mulham uh, saw the irony in calling the continent empty. Looking toward the future, it's not hard to see how the same spin might be applied to other extinctions, or even to the process of climate change itself, and it terrifies me. But I so often end my segments on a dour note, so... Why not try on this alternate ending for size? <laughs> Jefferson was wrong about the American incognitum, but maybe not for much longer. In 2015, scientists finished sequencing the mammoth genome, and several cloning projects are currently in their early stages. There is always hope. The last time I looked into it, they were 
still trying to get the DNA out of it and it was just so contaminated with all of the bacteria and everything else that were colonizing all of the hairs and everything and it was just kind of a disaster so yeah they um they they don't have any viable samples of mm. mammoth DNA but they do have the sequence so we can hypothetically build uh, copies of the genome from scratch as far as right. these things are actually built or from scratch from like elephants well yeah that's what they do it's, it's 90 it's 99 elephant um as as far as the the match goes and the idea is that you would gestate one of these things probably in an elephant right it's it is difficult because there was hope because we found full frozen mammoths and it, you know four thousand years is a long time and DNA degrades incredibly quickly, mm-hmm. but it's, it is way shorter than say 65 million years old. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But I think it's how they were characterized as, Oh, those angry mammoths. Well, I'm pretty sure they weren't angry. They seemed like they were probably pretty docile kinds of things. As long as you didn't like, yeah, they're antagonize no them. angrier than an elephant, which is generally, you know, like the bulls will fight and they'll be, Mm-hmm. If, if they're threatened, but they're not like a predator. But, yes. you know, if they weren't angry, then they sure as hell will be if we bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm worried about species bottlenecks. I mean, yes, we have a lot of those mm-hmm. going on. <laughs> but what is the ethics of bringing back a creature that A, we don't have room for, B, we do not have a full sequence for, and C, we're just going to bottleneck its genetics? Yeah, you'd have to find some way to introduce some artificial variation. There's a difference between having a a complete genome project, a full sequence Mm -hmm. of a genome, and then having, you know, that doesn't mean we have Ashlyn's genome and Lauren's genome and my genome and Laura's genome and every other person's genome. We have the human genome, which is uh, we have some common variations and like the the, the common genome that we all share. But there's a lot of allelic variation. Yeah. (laughs) And we don't have that for the mammoth, right? We have one complete sequence uh, and probably a few others uh, that are partials. So you would have to, you'd you'd probably end up, and they've talked about this before, um, essentially with a mammoth elephant hybrid. And that seems fine. I mean... uh, But why would we do it? Ethically, there's no reason to bring it back. Because super cool. Right. Uh, Essentially, what we'd be doing is bringing them back to live in zoos, which is arguably... um, I'd say I am 80-20 on zoos being more harm than good. There are lots of ethical issues with uh, animals in captivity. Oh, we'll get into that in my segment. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, that's, uh, that is a segment for another show. Uh, but we would probably be bringing them back to live in zoos, essentially. Yeah. Um, maybe some habitat preserves if we got government funding, you know, to, to put in Nunavut or something. <laughs> but they're gone. Let's just let them be. Let them have peace. I think this <laughs> yeah. question or the answer to this question is different depending on how long ago something was extinct. So 4,000 years is relatively recent, but we have species that went extinct less than 100 years ago, mm-hmm. right? The habitat that exists today is much more similar to what they were in compared to where the mammoths were, right? So I also see what you're saying, but also in terms of like bringing them back, it, it's more of a saving something, whereas now we're trying to add something back in, whereas everything has changed significantly. But if they're 
habitat has been destroyed, and that was one of the reasons that they have gone extinct. It just seems like a futile effort. We can't reintroduce them if that habitat is gone. Yeah, and we we have had significant climate change since then, Mm -hmm. which is only accelerating. But there are spaces in northern Canada and in northern Eurasia where their habitats would still exist. As I as I mentioned, it's not clear, you know, what the primary cause of their extinction was, but uh, hunting was a significant contributor. Mm-hmm. So uh, we could hypothetically, you know, save scum the mammoths. But your point is well made, and I'm I can't help but imagine Duncan Idaho just wanting to die. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> On that note, Lauren, do you want to tell us about the Tasmanian tiger? I do. In the introduction to our episode 108, Jem, you had mentioned the thylacine or the Tasmanian tiger. That episode was about cryptozoology, and Jem had mentioned the thylacine as an example of an extinct animal that some people swore was not really extinct and was living in a hermit population somewhere in Tasmania. Sadly, unlike fellow Antipodean Lazarus animals, the tree lobster and the Australian night parrot... The Tasmanian tiger is actually extinct. The last known thylacine died in the Hobart Zoo in 1936, after the species had been hunted to extinction in Tasmania by farmers and ranchers. The thylacine had become extinct on mainland Australia a few thousand years ago, and a recent genome map showed that it began a decline of genetic diversity over 70,000 years ago, which is before even indigenous Australians were on the continent. This decline uh, led to its inability to adapt to changes in its environment and its ultimate end. The species existed on a more isolated island of Tasmania until colonist farmers decreed it a nuisance for stealing livestock, leading to a cull. There's an infamous picture from 1921 by farmer Henry Burrell that shows a Taz tiger carrying off a chicken from a farm. This picture was an impetus for the widespread hunting and extermination of the thylacine, but analysis has since shown that the picture was staged and the animal in question was a mounted specimen. Oh, no! Example 5 million and 6, why people are awful. (laughs) So pre-extinction, the thylacines seemed fairly awesome. They were one of only two known marsupials where both sexes had a pouch. The male's was used to cover its external genitalia. They were the size and approximate shape of a mid-sized dog, with tan fur and dark stripes along their back and rump, and these stripes faded with age, but that's where they got their tiger name. Mm, I was wondering if they were actually related to the other tigers. No, only insofar as we're all related. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we would actually be more closely related to tigers than the thylacine would yeah. be. It's a marsupial. <laughs> right. Though the thylacine looked like a wild dog or a wolf, that was a trick of convergent evolution, two unrelated animals developing similar traits because they fill the same ecological niche. The Taz tiger was the apex predator for its area, similar to placental canines in North America. A recent study by Professor Andrew Pask and Dr. Charles Fain of the University of Melbourne show that while thylacines and wolves diverged genetically over 160 million years ago, and they don't share many protein-coded genes, they share similar non-protein elements, which may have a large impact on regulating gene development. This may account for why the thylacines and the wolves had similar builds, facial structures, and muscle structures that led them to develop into similar functions in their ecosystems. Even more surprisingly, the study found convergent evolution of genes in the brains of thylacines and wolves. Marsupials, their brain structures and genes had been previously proven to be extremely different, but the neural pathways that they had were more convergent in these two species. Oh, interesting. Because there is no scholarship on the pack behavior of thylacines, 
because we weren't interested in learning about them, just killing them. We don't know if these genes could show us any similarities in behaviors between the two species, and that's really frustrating. What do we know about thylacine behavior? They spun around really fast. That's the the Tasmanian (laughs) devil. They're still alive. There's some of that Arzu. They are the closest living relative. They're also uh, very small. They look kind of like rodents. (laughs) They can chew through like chains, though. Messed up. Yeah, I, I did a project on them in like grade six, and I remember like <laughs> I, I remember writing and therefore probably learning that they're, they're, I don't remember if it's their teeth or jaw strength of the jaw strength was second only to the like the great white shark. Yeah, their their jaws are are wicked. Anyway, different animal. <laughs> You've been listening to Australia Cast. <laughs> the jaws of the thylacine they weren't like the Tasmanian devil. They were too weak to allow the Taz tigers to be vicious sheep killers that farmers made them out to be. They couldn't have caught purchase on a sheep. Just get a jaw full of wool. (laughs) Yep. But they were able to open their jaws to an amazing degree. 80 degrees, in fact. Wow. That's too many degrees. (laughs) There is one picture where you see it. It it looks like a cartoon. Its mouth is wide open. It's got a flip top head. (laughs) It's a guy smiley. That's what that is. Yeah. You can find it on Wikipedia. They were nocturnal and they tracked by sight and sound as opposed to smell. By the time white colonists arrived on Tasmania, the thylacine was already very rare. Nevertheless, the first bounty on them was placed by 1830. Between 1888 and 1909, the bounty on their heads was one pound per adult and ten shillings per pup. One pound in 1888 is over 100 pounds per adult thylacine today. The Tasmanian government paid out over 2,000 bounties during the 20-year period, though many more were known to have been left unclaimed. Other factors, such as the introduction of wild dogs, habitat erosion, and the concurrent extinction of the prey species also contributed to the extinction of the thylacine. So it wasn't just humans, but it was a pretty big factor. Yeah, we probably also contributed to the extinction of the prey species. Yeah. Which presumably is less charismatic. I was going to say showy. Yeah. yeah. Than, uh, than the thylacine itself. Another huge factor was a distemper-like disease that wiped out a large swath of the wild population. A 2012 study posits that if it hadn't been for this disease, conservation efforts would have succeeded in saving the thylacine. But they proved to be too little too late, and the population declined all through the 1920s. The last Tasmanian tiger killed in the wild by humans was shot by farmer Wilf Batty in 1930. Batty? Wilf Batty. I've seen things. You people wouldn't believe. We're living in the future now, Jim. Yeah, I know. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) We can never say that Blade Runner is set in the future. A final animal was captured in 1933 and sent to live at the Hobart Zoo, where it died in 1936 after being locked out of its shelter during a rare bout of extreme weather. It's wild that we know the name of the guy who shot the last wild one of these things. There's a picture of him holding it. Yeah, it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's a wild thing to think about. And we don't have the name of the Dutch sailor that smacked the last dodo to death. No. <laughs> There's quite a few movies of the last ones in captivity. And I mean, they're short because it was from the 1930s. But you can see them. Uh, there are links on the Wikipedia page and everything. But to speak to what Laura was saying with the habitat, all of the habitat for the thylacine is now gone. Mm-hmm. And they don't have their prey species. And they were taken out both by humans and by the animals that humans brought with them. Mm-hmm. So there's really nowhere for them to go, even though they've only been gone for 90 years. We that- suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> I don't want to like rub it in. It was just like, it's like I, I have a counterpoint to that. <laughs> no, yeah. for sure. And I think it would depend too on 
each situation and, yeah. and what happened in them. Like if overhunting is the main issue, but then the, the habitat mostly survives, mm-hmm. then reintroduction seems somewhat feasible, right? Yeah. But if both of those things go together, then yeah, you're, you're still in that same position regardless of the amount of time that's gone on. And given that this is a confined area and like a, it's an island, it's a small place, mm-hmm. you have far less wiggle room with this kind of thing. You know, you can't just like move them over a couple provinces where there yeah. is more of this territory and start again, right? And it was like the genetic diversity being gone 70,000 years in the past, they were already, their population was genetically mm-hmm. shrinking. Like, yes, we accelerated their extinction, but I don't think that they would have lasted right even without human intervention. It was going to happen and and again this this virus came through. Yeah. And you know that probably happened to them at some point in the past before mm-hmm. the way that these things do and yep. if it didn't, you know, if it didn't wipe them out this time, maybe the next time, right? Which is really hard to think about, but yeah, it just and and again because it's that specialized island population, you're so much more likely to have that happen. Yeah. They were on Australia and Papua New Guinea as well as uh, the smaller island of Tasmania. But that was thousands of years ago. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. My extinct species also went extinct in the last century, and it was also, well, this one actually is a canine as opposed to canine-like. My species is the Newfoundland wolf, which oh, yeah. is interesting. So, Lauren, you've heard of this mm-hmm. before. Had anybody else heard of this species before? No. Um, so, it is basically a subspecies of the gray wolf from the mainland. So, there are wolves in Labrador all over the place, which is the gray wolf. But the wolves on Newfoundland were, in fact, a separate subspecies. They were smaller than the typical gray wolf. Um, They had narrower, smaller snouts and that. But they'd been living on Newfoundland for thousands of years. In fact, they weathered the Ice Age on Newfoundland. Imagine weathering the Ice Age on Newfoundland. (laughs) Yikes. No thanks. These are hardy creatures. Welcome to the land where the winters tried to kill us and we said, We will not be killed. Welcome to the land where the waters tried to drown us and we said, we will not be drowned. They don't call it The Rock for no reason. <laughs> Welcome to The Rock. <laughs> it's a great show. It's excellent. It's pretty good. It is fantastic. <laughs> it's pretty good. Jem doesn't like musicals as much as I do. Musicals are the best. Anyway, so much like every other wolf, they were a predator species, and this species mainly fed on the caribou population on the island, which was also quite large. So for thousands of years, they ate the caribou and they were healthy, healthy populations there. So Europeans arrived and settled for a long time this time on Newfoundland at some point in the 1500s-ish, something like that. 1600s when they 
Stayed, stayed. Stayed, stayed, maybe. Okay, I forget. Anyway, in the 1800s is when they're, like, in many places in North America, there were more and more Europeans arriving, colonizing, trying to farm, all this kind of stuff there. Ruining, yeah. Like we do. And it was at that point that there seems to have been a bit of an issue with this Newfoundland wolf. So it had existed for some time, but sometime around 1839, it was decided that this wolf was was not good anymore because it kept stealing the livestock and stealing them quite easily, apparently. And so much like for the Tasmanian tiger, there was a bounty put out for the wolves there. It was eating all of that free food the colonists left out for it? <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> why wouldn't you? Who would have thought? Yeah, you'd think they would just check in every morning. Morning, Ralph. Morning, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a bounty, but of course there was also some hunting for sport and for pelts and things like that going on as well for the wolf. So that did contribute to part of its decline. However, this bounty didn't actually cause the biggest decline there. So for the 70 years that the bounty existed, they only brought in about an average of 3.4 wolves a year, which is pretty small when you think of a bounty, you know, compared to yours, for Mm -hmm. example, um, which was much more than that in what, 20 years or something? 20 years, there was over 2,000 claimed. Right. So so much, much smaller than that. So hunting by particularly Europeans wasn't as big of an issue. What that we think was the biggest contributor to their decline was that there was a concurrent significant decline in the caribou population. So the caribou population in the early 1900s went from about 120,000 to 5 to 10,000 animals in a pretty short period of time, like over a 30-year span or something. So that's a very dramatic decrease. So that's basically all they ate. And so there were no more wolves after that. The last known wolf, which of course was known because it was shot, was in 1911. The species was officially declared extinct in 1930. So it's possible that a few more wolves survived somewhere out there. But if your numbers are that low, it's a matter of time. Now, interestingly, there have been a few wolf sightings in Newfoundland over the last decade or so in 2012, 2016, and then just this year as well, where hunters caught what they thought were coyotes, but turned out to be wolves. They actually sent them for DNA analysis because they're looking at this and they're like, this is way too big to be a coyote. And it was in fact wolves. So there had been some rumors or some hope, oh, the wolf is back. Like it wasn't actually extinct here. But what they actually think happened is these were Labrador wolves that crossed over the frozen ocean, much the way that coyotes got to the island in the first place. And it's occasionally how polar bears get to the island. Occasionally there are wolves and apparently there are some wolf-coyote hybrids living there as well. But the Newfoundland wolf, as it was, does not appear to exist anymore. This population talk has me down. Are you, are, you, are you suggesting that the Sasquatch might also go extinct soon? I don't know. Just keep the dream alive in your heart, Jem. They're immortal. <laughs> there can be only one. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, I did not write myself any kind of intro. Well, this sucks. (laughs) There's your intro. (laughs) I'm going to talk about the northern white rhino. So the northern white rhino is a huge animal. And several hundred years ago, there were thousands and thousands of them all across the African continent. In 1960, there were an estimated 2,000 left in the wild. Not great. By 1975, there were 500. 
and by 1984, 15. So that was uh, pretty steep. The uh, problem, of course, is poaching because the horns uh, just got absurdly valuable uh, for use as the curative agent for anything from uh, erectile dysfunction to cancer. And of course, their horns are made of keratin, which is the same stuff that our fingernails are made of. They are useless. Except uh, if you're a rhino. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're pretty useful for rhinos. Proof that market forces are always rational. <laughs> uh, they were killed indiscriminately and their horns sawn off and the rest of them were just left because they weren't valuable. Pretty horrifying. Conservation efforts briefly rallied their numbers to a high of 30 to 36 individuals in the year 2000, but as of today, there are currently only two known individuals left of the northern white rhino. Both are female. That means that the species is what is known as functionally extinct, possibly the saddest state to exist in. There are also, I think, several turtle species where there's only one known remaining member of the species. Yeah, George, the giant tortoise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he died a couple years ago. Mm. I feel like functionally extinct is even sadder than actually extinct. It's a, it's a level of bleakness usually reserved for speculative fiction. You know? Yeah, <laughs> sci-fi novels. <laughs> In addition, neither female is considered healthy enough to bear a calf. So... Even if we had an embryo, neither of these females would be able to carry it. They tried extensively to uh, inseminate them when they had live males, and um, they are just aren't healthy enough or had they have some reproductive problems that make it impossible. So uh, they are the daughter and granddaughter, respectively, of the last living male. So they're also very closely related. And these last two females are guarded around the clock by armed guards to prevent their loss at the hands of more poachers. Uh, their horns currently could sell for upwards of $50,000 per pound. Yikes. However, all hope is not lost. It is not impossible that the northern white rhinoceros might still be saved through IVF. Previous attempts have been either unsuccessful or botched in strange ways, like <laughs> using the sperm of a southern white rhino to fertilize the last four oocytes of a just-deceased female northern white rhino. They had a female who they knew had one working ovary, and she passed away, and so they immediately harvested that ovary and didn't have any sperm, so they decided not to freeze it and instead just use what they had on hand. Which was, which a, was a different species. Right. Yeah. So just very bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> a wasted opportunity for sure. Encouragingly, we do have a decent amount of genetic material to work with. The San Diego Zoo has 12 northern white rhino cell lines, and uh, working with them on the gene level can furnish eggs with enormous genetic variety, which is an insurance policy against the uh, inbreeding and genetic bottlenecks that we were talking about. So 12 lions plus the two living rhinos doesn't sound like a lot, but as a reference point, we believe that all living cheetahs today are descended from a single pair that was likely a brother and sister. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I oh, love right? that. <laughs> so things can bounce back from pretty small amounts of genetic diversity. And of course, the cheetah does suffer from their lack of diversity right now, oh, yeah. but they're, they're still kicking it out there. Well, they're still kicking it. <laughs> they're doing better than the rhino. It's a, uh, it's a low bar to clear, but yeah. Yeah, the, the southern white rhino has, uh, I want to say, a couple of thousand individuals still living. So this is just the other subspecies that is doing quite badly. And the western black rhino is already extinct. Yeah. yeah. That was last decade, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so in August of this year, scientists were able to harvest eggs from the two remaining females and fertilize them with sperm from dead males. 
It is quite a process. They had to use a tube inserted through the rectum to reach the ovaries, which are over four feet away. Oh, oh, and then boy. suck eggs up with a catheter. Not the easiest thing to do in a sedated rhinoceros. So those eggs were sent to a lab in Italy, which has succeeded in creating two viable embryos. Again, neither of these females can carry a pregnancy. So it's going to have to be probably a southern white rhino uh-huh. to carry the pregnancy. And like you hear about humans going through IVF and we know a lot more about human reproductive systems than we do rhino reproductive systems. And you will often get like a bunch of embryos implanted just to hope that one succeeds. So like we have two embryos. That is not a lot to work with, but it's something. Yeah. <laughs> Ashlyn, what is the easiest thing to do to a sedated white rhino? Leave it alone. Because <laughs> you did say that taking, Pet it gently. <laughs> <laughs> taking the embryos out was not the easiest thing you could do to a sedated white rhino. So I was just curious. Certainly easier to do to a sedated white rhino. Yeah. I don't know. There's probably about 150 things I could come up with that are easier than shoving a tube up its rectum and searching for its ovaries. I mean, those systems aren't... Well, I don't know in rhinos, but they shouldn't be connected. Yeah. They are not, but it is the easiest way to get to them, apparently. Interestingly, there's also the option of having a horse carry it because they are really uh, closely related Mm -hmm. genetically and their reproductive systems are very similar. And there's some thought that maybe the horse would be easier to deal with. Well, yeah. (laughs) So that's an option, I guess. Just imagining that foaling happen. (laughs) I've helped a horse give birth. I don't want to pull a rhino out of there. <laughs> Just imagine the one person in the room who is not informed of what's going on. <laughs> I mean, the worst thing with horses giving birth is that their little foals already have hard hooves. And they're, oh, that they're just scrapey. sounds terrible and bad. So a quote from, I'm going to say, Jan Stescal of the zoo that the two remaining females technically belong to, but they uh, they no longer live there. So it's uh, called the Dvur Kralove Zoo in the Czech Republic. They had, I want to say, 20 individuals at one point. Uh, but when there were about 10 of them left, they had four of them shipped to Kenya with the thought that being in their native lands would increase their sex drive and... If they had room to roam and their original food and everything, they would feel like getting frisky and reproducing and it didn't work. But there's no plan to ever ship them back to the Czech Republic. They're just going to let them live out their days in Kenya, which is cool. That makes sense, really. So anyway, he says, Five years ago, it seemed like the production of a northern white rhino embryo was an almost unachievable goal. And today we have them. Cool. Well, good luck. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Two embryos. We're going to try to move away from the lost causes and the probably lost causes and (laughs) look at uh, some cases where we might have, if not hope, a chance at least. So let's talk about some endangered species. I'm going to start with, uh, I think, the only plant that we're going to talk about today. As I said, the loss of plant species is occurring at roughly twice the rate of animal species, as far as we can tell. Uh, So let's talk about the Rafflesia. The Rafflesia is a parasitic plant that has no stem, leaves, or roots of its own. Cool! The only part of the Rafflesia that can be seen outside of its host vine is its massive flower. 
which can grow up to a meter in diameter and weigh up to 10 kilos. Whoa. I love what? it. That's, uh, that's more than three feet and 22 pounds for our American listeners. What color is it? It is orange and spotted. I'll show cool. you a picture. Does it smell bad? It does. <laughs> it is a parasite after all. We'll get there. Uh, it either smells good and kills you or well, it smells bad. Usually the gigantic ones smell bad to attract things to help disperse it. Mm, like big stuff to eat it? Yeah, like the corpse flower. That's how it... Right. It does, does indeed. We're, we're, you're getting into moly. my segment. I'm sorry. I don't want to ruin everything. Oh, I'm just excited. Thing. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. You could take a bath in that thing. I didn't know it was in danger. That that's an enemy in Earthbound. in the in the black swamps in addition to its impressive size the rafflesia is remarkable for several other reasons scientists have detected a significant level of horizontal gene transfer between the rafflesia and its host plants while horizontal gene transfer is often observed in bacteria it is substantially rarer in eukaryotes but one of the most remarkable things about the rafflesia as ashlyn alluded to is its odor in Indonesia, where Rafflesia is the official state flower, its name translates as rare flower or giant flower. But elsewhere in its range, its local name translates as meat flower or corpse flower. Uh, we have talked about corpse flowers on the podcast before. I believe they came up in one of the games that I uh, put together. But there are actually two different plants that are commonly called the corpse flower. Both are endangered, and both are credited with having the largest flower in the world. <laughs> Well, the parasitic Rafflesia appears to have the best claim here, the Titan Aurum has the largest unbranched inflorescence in the world, a distinction that's uh, frankly not worth getting into. Yeah, I just looked it up. It is the other corpse flowers that I was thinking of when I said corpse flower. Yep. <laughs> in any event, the Rafflesia's stench attracts flies and other pollinators, while small mammals such as tree shrews appear to help with seed dispersal. Uh, most species of Rafflesia are endangered, largely through habitat loss, a common story when it comes to endangered and extinct species, and its difficulties are compounded by serious reproductive limitations. The Rafflesia flowers for a very short period of time. After a host vine is infected, a Rafflesia bud will emerge, but will take between six and nine months before it blooms, always at night after which the flower begins to decompose almost immediately and is often dead after 48 hours. Since both a male and female flower must be open at the same time, there is a very short window in which pollination can occur. God, they're like the pandas of the floral world. <laughs> On another interesting note, at least one species of Rafflesia appears to have lost the genome coding for its chloroplast, which would render it completely incapable of photosynthesis. This is obviously very rare in plants, but presumably its parasitism is sufficient to keep it alive without the ability to photosynthesize. Super cool. So that's the Rafflesia. And I sincerely hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I have no idea. <laughs> like, I don't have a lot of sympathy for this plant. <laughs> like, it, Not charismatic it enough for you? Well, no, it has made its... It's, it's, it's charismatic megaflora. So difficult for itself that it's kind of like. Do you think eh. it did this on purpose, though? I mean, no, no, I don't think that. I'm just kind of like, okay, so it is only food for things for one day. It doesn't grow anything. It doesn't add it to the soil. It doesn't do anything it's except an sting and feed <laughs> things for one day. 
Like, I mean, it was I mean, doing pretty good for itself until we came and screwed up its habitat. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I see it. I'm, it's, I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying it should be gone. I'm just saying as far as species go, this one's kind of like, eh. <laughs> it's not on the top of my list of conservation. Maybe efforts. it has some sort of awesome medicine that we don't even know we're looking for yet. We'd never find it because it only blooms for one day. <laughs> Why does it need to have a use for humans? Extinction and uh, endangerment of species is talked about, obviously, a lot more when we're talking animals. And I haven't really penciled in a discussion in this episode for us to talk about why conservation, mm-hmm. why, you know, why it's important to conserve, because it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer. Uh, and a lot of it, I think, ultimately comes down to aesthetics. Uh, you know, we like having... Corpse flowers. <laughs> right. <laughs> we love them. We, we like so variety. Stinky. You know, it's, it's nice to have lots of different kinds of things around for for plants though like i i do kind of get where where laura's coming from because aside from its function in its habitat it you know there's no with an animal you can think about what you would want right because there is an experience of being an animal uh for at least for most animals arguably some insects are essentially robots uh but there, there is some sort of sensory and sapient experience of, of being an animal, but as far as we can tell, um, it is vanishingly unlikely that there is such a thing for any plant that we could that we could name. So you don't you don't get that sense of you know what would I want if I were a Rafflesia because there is no wanting and there is no being a Rafflesia. You you can't be a Rafflesia because mm. there is no there's no there there you know consciousness yeah. weird thing mm-hmm. anyway let's forget about the plants deal L- lauren tell us about the steelhead arguably more charismatic than a corpse flower <laughs> is a trout. i disagree <laughs> i prefer the flower <laughs> every year in british columbia steelhead trout return to the thompson and chilcotin river systems to spawn the thompson and chilcotin are tributaries of the fraser river near the city of kamloops the Fraser, or the Stalo, if we aren't using names associated with colonization, is home to a good many more fish species, including white sturgeon and all five species of Pacific salmon, Chinook, Coho, Chum, Pink, and Sockeye. Climate change, habitat loss, and overfishing of the salmon population has led to record low spawn rates of the steelhead trout population. We have a near-extinction event precipitated by human action happening right now in Canada. Most of the information for this section was brought to my attention by archaeologist Joanne Hammond via her Twitter feed. She provided the major links for my research and brought this to my attention. Not personally, she just put it out into the world, and I just happened to pick up on it. Her website, Republic of Archaeology, is in the show notes. An October 24, 2019 update from the Ministry of Forests, Lands, and Natural Resources Operations states that the current spawning population of the Thompson watershed is 86 fish. Whew. And in the Chilcotin, there are 39 fish in the spawning Jeez. population. These are the lowest numbers in the 50 years of data for each river. Previous low numbers had prompted the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada to urge the Canadian government to put the steelhead on the endangered list using SARA, the Species at Risk Act. Putting the steelhead on the list would bar all steelhead fishing by recreational, commercial, and First Nations groups. But here's the tricky part. As I mentioned before, the steelhead share the Fraser River and spawning areas with all of those species of salmon. 
Steelhead are only slightly smaller than the chum salmon, and their spawning seasons coincide, so the trout are getting caught in the commercial gillnet set up to catch the salmon. Mm-hmm. Commercial salmon fishing is big business in B.C. The provincial and federal governments have refused to put the steelhead on the endangered list because doing so would shut down the salmon fishing during steelhead spawning season. Currently, Fisheries and Oceans Canada is standing by their 27-day rolling closure to allow the steelhead to get to their spawning grounds. But environmental studies show that the closures should be between 60 and 84 days if we want any hope of the species coming back from the brink of extinction. As it stands now, the small measures put in place won't protect the steelhead, and they will be extinct purely through human-made means within the next decade. That reminds me uh, in Wild Ones, uh, which I'll be recommending again later. Mulam talks quite a bit about the Endangered Species Act and how it was signed into law, essentially, with nobody really thinking it through because yeah. it was just a feel-good measure. And then they were like, oh, no, this will have economic impacts. Yeah. And so now, essentially, whenever conservationists try to add a new species to the list, it goes on sort of a waiting list for the endangered species list. And the typical story is that species go extinct while they're on the waiting list. Yeah, they're uh, waiting for their kidney, yeah. and they never make it to the top of the list. Yeah, uh, and there are many stories of species being added to the official endangered species list only for conservationists to point out they went extinct five years ago. Yeah. This is happening in Canada. Contact your MPs, your MLAs. Let them know that you care about the steelhead or, you know, just biodiversity in the Fraser River. Yep. Is it farmed? The steelhead? Yeah. No. Okay. There are steelhead in other waterways as well. Okay. This is just these. Just this. Okay. Yeah. The ones and is that this are a, a subspecies or it's just this area? I'm just this area. clarifying. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. These ones were pointed out. Yesterday, in fact, I read Joanne Hammond's thread and I went, huh, there's one to talk about. Laura, do you want to get us up to speed on the pangolin? Absolutely. (gasps) I know! (laughs) They always look like they're proposing. They're so cute. Those lovely little stench armadillos. (laughs) Kira was was sitting beside me as I was looking at my references and seeing some pictures she's like what's that (laughs) it was so cute they're so cute so for anybody who isn't familiar with a pangolin it is uh, a mammal that lives in asia and africa and it is almost entirely covered by scales so if you're thinking think kind of like an armadillo but instead of bigger plates it's it's lots and lots of scales all over it head to tail even in fact both sides of its long flat tail are covered in scales which is pretty cool so it's only its soft tummy that's not covered in scales it's like uh like smaug that way (laughs) so they are a mammal and uh they are an anteater like animal so they they mostly feed on ants and termites and like i mentioned they live in asia and africa there are eight species four species in each of those continents there but unfortunately, they are very endangered. In Asia, they are all critically endangered. In Africa, they are rapidly becoming critically endangered. So the biggest threat to these lovely little creatures is human poaching. Because as was alluded to with the rhino segment, humans seem to think that keratin is magic. And those little scales on the pangolin are made of keratin. And so people are constantly catching these these lovely little creatures for their scales um in some places 
the meat is also considered a delicacy, so they are eating them, or they've they've been traditionally eaten, just like many other bush creatures have been traditionally eaten. Uh, but by and large, it it's for the scale trade that people are are catching them. Multiple sources report that this is the most trafficked animal outside of humans in the planet. Wow. It's estimated that a million of them have already been stolen from the wild. That's a dire statistic. Looking at the years between 2011 and 2013 alone, up to 240,000 of them were found to be trafficked during that time. And of course, that's based on what's actually been seized by by government officials. And so we know Mm -hmm. that that's just the tip of the iceberg for this. So we really don't know how many more pangolins have been taken from the wild. Are they ever sold as pets or am I just imagining that? They are... But the trade in the scales has become so lucrative that I doubt they would be kept. It's just as not pets. significant enough to make a dent compared to the other stuff that they're. Yeah. But presumably, if the scales are so valuable, you couldn't buy a pet for a reasonable price right. anymore. Right. The other thing, too, and this also contributes to their demise and the the challenge in the conservation efforts is that they do very poorly in captivity. Mm. On average, they only live about 200 days in captivity. Oh, wow. Um, They get stressed very, very easily. And so they they get sick and die from that very quickly. They also have a very specific kind of diet. So for some of the species, it's not just that they'll eat ants and termites, but they'll only eat certain species of ants and only certain species of termites. And they'll only eat them right out of the mound. They won't eat them if you, you know, just have, here's some ants. They won't eat them like that. One of the interesting things about the pangolins. So have you guys seen a pangolin tongue? Yes. Mm -hmm. They're all curly, right? Well, it's super long. Yeah, so they can stick them right down into there. Yeah. So their tongue starts at the base (laughs) of their sternum. Like, it's so long that there is a part in its throat where the tongue curls in on itself when it's resting as a place to put this tongue. And then when it's all the way in, it, like, curls up inside its abdomen. It is bananas. (laughs) It's It's super wild. It's so, so funny. So it kind of makes sense that they would be picky then because they're so highly specialized for a certain type of food that with that kind of tongue, it just doesn't make sense. So all of those factors together make it really tough for them to survive once they're pulled out of the wild as well. So even if people wanted them as pets, they probably wouldn't last very long and people would give up on Mm. them. Now, it's actually pretty easy to catch these things because their main defense mechanism is to curl up into a tiny scaled ball and play dead, which is great if your predator has jaws and is trying to bite into you. It's not going to hurt you and they'll move on, right? But if it's a human, the human can just pick up that ball. And in many cases, too, it's so sad because the mother will, like, put their little babies on the inside to protect them, and the human picks up all of it. Like, the mother and the babies. I mean, it would be worse if they left one or the other, I guess, but it's just so sad that, like, the whole family gets taken. It's awful. Humans are terrible. They're just Mm -hmm. garbage. Oh, God, I sound like my husband. (laughs) (laughs) The worst. Yeah. As I mentioned, all of the Asian pangolin species are critically endangered, and there has been a total ban on trading them, eating them, catching them, anything like that since 2000. And there's been a similar ban placed on all of the African species since 2017. But of course, just because something's illegal doesn't mean people stop doing it there. So as I mentioned, it's really their scales, what people are after. And it's really the the traditional medicines, the TCM, that is driving the, the need for this. Most of the scales end up in China. Um, the actual medicines made from these things 
do show up throughout Asia in a lot of different markets there, but there's over 200 companies making 60 different medications or traditional Chinese medicines that include these pangolin scales. Now, part of what was allowing this or sort of encouraging this to happen is that the Chinese government had this ingredient or medicines including this ingredient on their their sanctioned formulary of drugs, meaning that their Mm. state-owned drug coverage program would pay for these things. So that's Mm. an incentive. It makes it, one, widely available, and two, sort of an incentive to use these things. Because apparently in China, if something's on the formulary, it's not just cheaper for people or free or whatever, but it's because of the government influence, it's also seen as as condoning something. So if it's on the formulary, it's good. If it's off, it's not good if that makes sense. So that was really what was fueling the decline there. Like, we don't actually know what the numbers are because these these are solitary creatures. They live in the deep bush. Um, They're nocturnal as well. So it's really hard to get numbers. But just based on the numbers that are coming out of the forest, we have to, we can't imagine that they're reproducing that quickly. As I mentioned, they don't do well in captivity. There have been a few breeding programs that have started. Um, Some of them have been conservation-based. Some of them were thinking, okay, well, much like salmon, let's farm them. And if we want to use these creatures, okay, but let's, let's do it in a sustainable way. Unfortunately, a lot of these were rated as fronts for the illegal trade, because humans. And again, they just... If, if the creatures can't even survive a year in captivity, how are they going to reproduce and raise their young? Yeah. So is there any good news on this? Well, as of August 20th of this year, the Chinese government took this medication or this ingredient off their formulary. Wonderful. Good. So this is this is really good. And, and like I said, it's, it's that that good, bad thing. So not only is it is it now not it's now more expensive than it was if people choose to use it. It's also seen as a no longer approved mm-hmm. kind of thing. So opinions take time to change, but hopefully that will help with some of it. There's also some practitioners in traditional Chinese medicine that admit or not admit, but embrace the idea of looking for alternatives here. Like whether you buy into it or not, we don't. But for the people who do, there's practitioners that say, you know, if you're looking for this, this and this, well, these other ingredients that are totally sustainable and don't hurt these creatures will give you that same thing. So there's no reason to use this ingredient when you could use this or that or that. You should want toenails. (laughs) Right. You wouldn't know. In any case, it's great to see that people within that movement or community or whatever are also recognizing that there's another way of Mm -hmm. of doing it and that this is not the only way of doing it. That's really hopeful. It's hard to know exactly what's going to happen with them, but hopefully with some of these bigger measures, I mean, if, if China's driving that big demand and if there's less of a financial incentive, maybe that'll help slow the tide. Mm hmm. As long as it hasn't hit that magic number where it just... Point. Yeah, exactly. Point. Yeah. Exactly. And again, because we don't actually know what mm-hmm. the wild numbers are, we really don't know where we're at. Time will tell. But um, if you go, go take a look at a picture of a pangolin, they're so cute. <laughs> so cute. They are stinky, though. Yeah, but they're cute. That's why you look at pictures. Pictures. Pictures are good. Ashlyn, why don't you bring us home with a little bit more talk of conservation? The Endangered Species Act is a framework in the United States for, theoretically, helping to ensure that identified species of flora and fauna which are endangered are set up to recover. It includes restrictions on hunting, taking specimens from their habitat, and on trade and use. 
the Species at Risk Act, or SARA, functions similarly in Canada. Specifically, quote, The purposes of the Species at Risk Act are to prevent wildlife species in Canada from disappearing, to provide for the recovery of wildlife species that are extirpated, endangered, or threatened as a result of human activity, and to manage species of special concern to prevent them from becoming endangered or threatened. Unless it's commercially viable not to. (laughs) (laughs) These acts were primarily designed to get populations of at-risk species up to a level where they could be self-sustaining, and then for that species to be delisted. It was assumed that these animals or plants could then thrive under existing regulations. For some species, that is indeed the case. Uh, The Aleutian Cackling Goose, which is an awesome name, and essentially looks exactly like a Canadian goose, and as far as I can tell, sounds the same too. I like looked up its calls because I thought it would be entertaining. Not really, just like a high-pitched Canada goose. (laughs) So, disappointing there. (laughs) It was endangered, uh, but it recovered quickly and completely once the invasive foxes were removed from their habitat. So there were foxes that were just eating all their eggs, and that was screwing them up. Once we took the foxes away, the uh, existing protections for migratory birds formed enough protections for them to thrive with no further intervention. So Sarah acted the way that it was supposed to. We got the population back up to where it was self-sustaining, and we can now pretty much leave them alone as long as no further threats present themselves. And those foxes had been introduced, right? Right, they were an invasive species. Unfortunately, 80% of species currently listed under the Endangered Species Act do not actually meet that expectation. They require ongoing species-specific intervention to avoid extinction. It's tough, though, when these species are removed from the red list because there's almost never the kinds of focused and powerful regulatory mechanisms available to replace the protections under the ESA or SARA. A quote from a paper in Bioscience by Goebel et al., This is hardly surprising. The species listed under the ESA all became imperiled despite existing state and federal management systems. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we couldn't do enough to keep them from getting endangered. And therefore, once we get them up to a population level that should be able to reproduce and be sustainable, if we don't keep helping them, they get right back to where they were. A good example is the giant panda. Basically, the international symbol for endangered animals, as the logo of the World Wildlife Fund. Its conservation status on the red list was actually downgraded in 2016 from endangered to vulnerable. While some organizations celebrated, others worried. Climate predictions estimate that the panda's habitat will be reduced more than 30% in just a few years, and ongoing habitat fragmentation via highways being built and such threatens what progress has been made. In addition, the status downgrade or upgrade, depending on who you ask, represents only 2,000 pandas, and many researchers are asking whether the number of pandas is actually increasing, or if we're just getting better at counting wild pandas. (laughs) Oh no. Without a doubt, though, the panda will require ongoing conservation efforts to preserve its habitat and avoid getting back on the list. It is a conservation-reliant species. So the criteria for assessing whether a species is conservation-reliant are, number one, Threats to the species' continued existence are known and treatable. The threats are pervasive and recurrent, for example, nest parasites, non-native predators, or human disturbance. The threats render the species at risk of extinction, absent ongoing conservation management. Management actions sufficient to counter threats have been identified and can be implemented, for example, prescribed fires, restrictions on grazing or public access, or predator or parasite control. 
And finally, national, state, or local governments, often in cooperation with private or tribal interests, are capable of carrying out the necessary management actions as long as necessary. So that's quite a list, and given that, it is kind of horrifying that 80% of the things on the red list qualify as needing all of this. So another star example of a conservation-reliant species is the tiger. Huge efforts have been put into securing refuges and sanctuaries for tigers in their native lands, but humans will be needed for the foreseeable future to ensure genetic corridors between populations remain open, as well as doing jobs like guarding against poachers and uh, keeping the uh, reserves safe, basically, like making Mm -hmm. sure that they don't just become another development. Tigers are often rated the most popular animal in surveys conducted in the West, according to Eric Dinerstein, lead scientist of World Wildlife Fund's conservation science program. As a result, the endangered species may have more money spent on it than any other. In 2010, the cost of managing tiger reserves alone cost at least $82 million, according to The Economist. The popularity of tigers, pandas, and other big furry mammals has a cost of its own in the form of the failure to rescue smaller, creepier, or less well-known animals. Ants, for instance, are essential environmental helpers, distributing seeds, aerating soils, and eating other insects that are human pests, says Mark Beckoff, an ethologist at the University of Colorado Boulder. Quote, if we're going to save pandas rather than ants, we need a good reason, and being cute is not a good reason. (laughs) One strategy that is gaining momentum in some circles is to conserve entire species-rich ecosystems rather than concentrating on individual species. For example, the reserves which have been created for tigers have also helped populations of pangolins. Yay! As well as swamp deer and pygmy hogs, which sound horrible. (laughs) But I'm sure they're adorable. (laughs) Anything pygmy sounds awesome. (laughs) Anything. Defining conservation-reliant species should distinguish between species that depend on human intervention to persist in the wild versus those that would thrive without humans in the landscape. For example, in jack pine forests, some species, like the Kirtland's warbler, would be able to get back to being a self-sustaining population with very little trouble if their ecosystem was permitted to do what comes naturally and basically burn all the way down every once in a while. Uh, Because of the great cost to humans of allowing that, we have chosen to make this bird and others that share its habitat a conservation-reliant species because it requires us to come in and set controlled fires and other regimented disturbances in order to maintain its habitat. So it's never going to be able to live in a sustainable population on its own without us doing anything, because with us doing nothing, or rather just living our lives the way we want to, we are screwing up its habitat irrevocably. So they're always going to require humans in order to not be endangered. Hmm. So 80% plus of species that are threatened now require ongoing species-specific management to avoid extinction. Researchers are confident that that number isn't going down anytime soon, since many of the dangers facing the planet are only increasing in severity over time. So, more and more of those animals that get added to the list are basically going to stay there forever, because taking them off the list means that there are no more protections for them, and we can't keep putting resources into them without the framework of the law surrounding them. So it's safer for them to just leave them on the list and not delist them. It's a whole ongoing debate. Hmm. And it looks like uh, polar bears are uh, headed for conservation-reliance status as well, Mm. in all likelihood. Mm -hmm. No sea ice left. No. Speaking of the, you'd mentioned one species that, you know, they took out the invasive things there. So we have something 
here as well. So the Peregrine Falcon is a pretty good example yeah, yeah. of yeah. this as well. And I was going to do a little bit, so I did a little, tiny bit of research, but not enough. But basically, DDT was making it so that their eggs were too brittle, and so they were breaking before they could hatch Happened and things like that. Happened with the too. Exactly. So a lot of those prey birds, and it's because they were at the top of the food chain, so all of their food was contaminated and so on and so forth. And so um, the removal of DDT and concentrated efforts there and the peregrines are, are you know, they're still vulnerable, but they're doing a lot better than they were. And we have some nesting on some of the high rooftops in downtown Winnipeg. And there are cameras that you can watch the chicks hatch every year. I was going to say, I, I watch one of the cameras every year. Mm-hmm. It's really great. It's really great. And so that's just, you know, they're, the stories are not as frequent as they should be. There are stories. Yeah. The DDT thing is the other example that was cited in every paper along with the cackling goose one. So, yeah. Yeah. So So birds are good. The birds are good. (laughs) Mammals, we're just effed. It's it's always sad because you do see on the DDT subject, uh, you you do see some skeptics occasionally citing some bad uh, libertarian statistics on the subject of DDT and arguing uh, against Silent Spring, which is a good book worth reading, I think, and arguing that the DDT ban caused more harm than good, and uh, it's false. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the things that they uh, various enterprise institutes are fond of citing is the idea that the DDT ban had a negative impact in developing countries that were thereby unable to use DDT to control mosquito populations. Uh, However, this is false. The ban had specific exemptions uh, for exactly that reason. So uh, don't uh, believe everything you read and uh, look at the agendas of some of the people that uh, you might have going on there. I remember uh, being very frustrated uh, with Brian Dunning's uh, Skeptoid episode on uh, DDT uh, for this reason. Uh, not a good app. On an app note, our daughter just went to a birthday party today where everybody was asked to bring a stuffy and you find out if your your stuffed animal is endangered or not. And they had the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center come and bring some rehabilitating animals and talk about the importance of conservation in that. So, Oh, that's so great. Six-year-olds yeah, are, are hearing it and, and applying it to their own lives with their, their stuffies and things like that. There's also a uh, link in the show notes that I added that I didn't actually use much of the information from, but the pictures are beautiful. And it's like 10 stories of animals that have been saved through various conservation efforts. Like there's a turtle species that got 90% wiped out because of a fungal disease. And we were able to reintroduce them into the wild because we uh, managed to make like a special area that didn't have any of this disease and threw them back out there. Cool. So go check out those pictures too. Super cute. Why don't we end the podcast on a positive note? Uh, what have you all been enjoying lately? I've gone first every other time. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Pacific Northwest stories and their horror spinoffs, like The Last Movie and Tannis. How is Tannis? I've had I've heard lots of recommendations. I'm like three episodes into Tannis, but I just finished uh, the first season of The Last Movie. And that was good. I listened to the black tapes a few months ago, and I was really disappointed with the ending. No spoilers. But I decided to give them another try because I like fictional horror. You listened to Alice Isn't Dead, right? Yeah, I listened to Alice Isn't Dead. Have you listened to um, The Horror of Dolores Roach? No. It's really good. And it is basically a radio play. Very Sweeney Mm Todd-esque, but modern. The Horror of Dolores Roach, starring Daphne Rubin Vega.
I think I mentioned this last time, but I just finished the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy mm. there. It was predictable and silly, but it was it was fun. And Gem and I went to Singapore 10 years ago, and it just reminded me of our time in Singapore, which was nice. And now uh, they keep talking about these, these desserts called pineapple tarts, which sound amazing, and I really want to make them. So soon I will make pineapple tarts. I hope we like, get to come over. Yes. With like a spiced <laughs> pineapple jam on the inside. Heck yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right? I'm also really looking forward to a podcast coming back for its second season. It is called The Double Shift, which is all about being a mother, a working mother, really. And it's about the stories of the mums, not the kids. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned this mm, a yeah, while back, but it's coming back for its second uh, its second season. So. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I recently downloaded a book that I'm really looking forward to reading. It is called Stealing from Wizards by R.A. Consul. I know of Ryan because he at least used to contribute to Mad Art Lab, uh, which was a spinoff of Skeptic. Uh, and he makes the most interesting, like, it's like cosplay that he can wear to work. So it's mostly vests mm-hmm. in various kinds of, uh, he, he turns characters into vests that he wears to work. Uh it's delightful, and he has written a book about stealing from wizards, volume one, pickpocketing. It's <laughs> $3 on Kindle, support a Canadian author, go buy it. Cool. So much of my segment uh, on the math this month was inspired by John Mullum's book, Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people looking at animals in America. <laughs> that is the full title. <laughs> if you're interested at all in conservation, it's uh, it's worth reading, I think. I, I haven't finished it yet. I'm about halfway through, but it's uh, it's pretty great so far. Uh, I like his authorial voice. Um, it is engaging and entertaining and meandering in uh, the, the way that I tend to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want a taste, uh, Mulam was featured a few years ago on uh, the podcast 99% Invisible, which uh, most people, if they know of podcasts, they know of that one. And that uh, episode uh, featured Mulam reading portions of the book, uh, along with a musical performance by Black Prairie, which had an entire album inspired by John Mulam's book. So if you're at all interested in conservation, it's an interesting read on the history of conservation uh, through the lens of uh, mostly three specific animals. And uh, it includes lots of interesting stories, uh, including the story of a man who thought the only hope for preserving the bison was in memory, and so he set out on a campaign of hunting them down so that he could mount and stuff them. Jesus. Um, Also, uh, I want to shout out the first book that got me interested in conservation, which was Last Chance to See by Douglas Adams and uh, Mark Carradine. I've I've read it several times. Adams mentioned it as his favorite book that he had written. It's his only nonfiction book, as as far as I know. And there was a TV series. As yes, well. there was a TV series recently uh, from BBC with Stephen Fry and Mark Carwardine, uh, and it was very good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I give that a recommend as well. And finally, uh, in the non-book world, but on the theme of extinction, kind of, I just finished finally playing a game called Outer Wilds, and it is. Uh, definitely one of the best two or three games I've ever played. It is uh, words escape me. It, it, it was uh, absolutely gorgeous, a beautiful, wonderful game, truly lovely, um, beautiful score, 
wonderful story. Just and it, the, the act of playing it is it is a lonely game in a lot of ways. Uh, it is a game of exploration and discovery, of figuring things out, trying to figure out what happened, trying to figure out why things happened, and how all the pieces fit together, um, and trying to figure out what comes next. And and the the soundtrack is absolutely lovely. Um, there's probably a little bit of it playing right now. Uh, as I as I speak, uh, because I'm in charge of this edit. God damn it. <laughs> Maybe it's fair use. Maybe it's an ad for Outer Wilds. So I'm sure I'm sure they won't mind. Hashtag ad. Yeah. Hashtag we need the money. <laughs> it uh, yeah, it's available on PC, Xbox, PS4, and it's it's lovely. Uh, and not to be confused with the Outer Worlds, uh, which uh, recently came out uh, and is, in my opinion, less good, but still good. You know, it's it's the kind of game that I mostly enjoy. Outer Worlds critiques capitalism. Doesn't have the same teeth that I would like, but you know, it's, it's pretty good. Thanks for joining me tonight, folks. And uh, thanks to the listeners who choose to support Life, the Universe, and everything else by donating, either on a one-time basis or monthly. If you would like your name in the credits or just want to help us keep this rinky-dink ship afloat, uh, you can head over to lueepodcast.com slash donate. And we would also appreciate your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Thanks so much. We'll read them on the show if you leave us one, if, if we can see them, because yeah. sometimes we can't. S- send us, uh, if you do leave us, uh, leave us a review and you, and you want us to read it, you can send us a link to it. Um, Apple Podcasts used to segment them by region, so we could only see the Canadian ones uh, for quite a while. I, I don't know if that's still true, but uh, we appreciate the review whether we get to see it or not. Good night, okay. everyone. Good night. Good night. Bye. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. Oh, what are we talking about next week? Ashley? No, you forgot. Next, what are we talking no, about next month? Too late. You gotta tell me. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I thought of something and now I forget. Anyway, we're getting off track, so um, let's <laughs> get further off track. Snuffleupagus cast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Next week, back to sandwich cast. <laughs> I was really Is caught up with a sandwich. <laughs> it killed me when Mister Hooper died. Mm. I know. I know. I was so young, and I still remember that. Good lesson. Oh my god. We're talking about extinction. (laughs) Laura, do you enjoy things? No. I mean, I've been determined. (laughs) Uh, Have you made any good bread lately? I made some pretty reasonable bread last weekend. (laughs) It was pretty good. We're still still eating it, right, Jem? Mm -hmm. Kira refuses to eat it unless it's toasted. I say, do you want a sandwich? What kind of bread? My bread. Oh. <laughs> Every wow. time. That's really rough. Yeah, and for a yeah. while, she only wanted, like, white store bread, right? Well, yeah. She wants, well, an, she wants like, a, an edible plate. She's, no, she's, like, she's very happy to eat store, as long as it's store-bought, she'll eat, like, whole wheat whatever bread. Their oh. white bread, she asks for occasionally, but she almost never gets it. So. Harsh.
Yeah, that's <laughs> it's fine. I've I've come to accept it. It's whatever. Laura's bread is really good. Yeah, it but is. But you know, good. it's artisanal. Yeah, it's got a thick crust, and heaven forbid she has to chew a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Trilogy mm. there, which was predictable and and fluffy, but still kind of fun. And whoa, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> podcast started playing <laughs> not ours <laughs> um you're cheating on us laura <laughs> i know um mr snuffleupagus we have a problem uh what's that susan well kids don't have snuffles no that is no problem at all and i will show you why okay. there's an exercise that's really fabulous Especially if you're a snuffle up a gust, but you can use your arm if you don't have a snuffle and you too can do the snuffle shuffle. Uh huh. You put your snuffle up, you put your snuffle on the ground, you put your snuffle up again and shake it all around, and then you try to turn as you shake up that snuffle, and that's how you do yeah the snuffle shuffle. Let's do the snuffle shuffle. Make those snuffles shake. Do the snuffle shuffle till it feels like a snuffle earthquake.